0: The Education Channel supports individual educational goals and encourages creativity for all. Visit uctv.tv
1: education. It is my great pleasure to introduce our very special guest for today, Jose Antonio Meade. Secretary Meade is a Mexican politician, economist, lawyer, and diplomat. He has previously served as a cabinet minister under Presidents Felipe Calderon and Enrique Peña Nieto in a variety of portfolios becoming the first Mexican official appointed to the cabinet on five separate occasions. Secretary Meade was the Institutional Revolutionary Party's candidate in the 2018 presidential election, in which he placed third. Between 2011 and 2017, he held cabinet-level positions in the federal government of Mexico, including acting as Secretary of Finance and Public Credit, Secretary of Social Development, Secretary of Foreign Affairs, and Secretary of Energy. Secretary Mead, thank you so much for being with us today. And of course, also with us today is the Honorable Janet Napolitano. She is the former president of the University of California, former secretary of Homeland Security, former governor of Arizona, former attorney general of Arizona, and former United States uh, attorney for the state of Arizona. We at Berkeley are lucky to have uh, Professor Napolitano with us as a professor of public policy at the Goldman School. We are here today to discuss the close and vital relationship between the United States and Mexico, and who better to have this conversation with than a five-time cabinet minister from Mexico and the woman who created DACA. With that, let me hand it over to you.
0: Thank you, (laughs) Daniel. Let's start with a, a, a global question. So, President Biden has said that the world today is in a competition between autocracy and democracy. Um, how do you view that uh, competition, and, and how, do, uh, how is it viewed
2: in Mexico? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. First, let me say I'm very honored to be here and to share the stage with Secretary Napolitano. They explained to me about Berkeley Times, so, so it seems that <laughs> from that perspective, we're starting spot on. I, and I think there's, there's three trends that, that are happening globally that, that sort of explain the, this framework that, that President Biden puts forth in terms of reflecting between democracy and autocracy. One of them, at least in Latin America, is, is the balance of liberal democracies. And I think that if, if you look at Latin America, had we met six years back, a couple of things have, w- w- would have been different. First, both of us would have been employed, so, so that, Well, she's meaningfully employed, but both of us would be probably public life still. But if if you look at the dialogue in Latin America, basically, sort of liberal ideas have taken a hold. And you had the Pacific Alliance working about the liberalizing movement of people, trade, goods, resources. The Pacific Alliance countries were speaking with Mercosur. Mercosur was negotiating with, with the European Union, the US was reapproaching Cuba, the, the Colombians were negotiating peace, and there was a sense all around that liberal democracies were producing good results. And I think if one looks at those results, you could argue that they, they, were, they were onto something. Poverty, especially extreme poverty, had fallen down, and wealth creation, I think, was way up. But there was something missing in the middle, and I think that's where, where liberal democracies fell short. And that created a space for a different sort of discourse and a different sort of political arrangement. And I think that it is there where we have to reflect. Why is it that we created space for sort of a illiberal speech and a discourse, and some non-democratic tendencies to take hold? Because in many cases, those anti-democratic tendencies actually got to power through elections. And I think that one has to recognize both what liberal democracies, again in Latin America concept, got right, but also what we didn't get right and where there was opportunity to do better. And from that perspective, if we want liberal democracies to have and to enjoy broad popular support, we would have to make sure that next time around, liberal democracies actually result in better outcomes, not just in the two extremes of income distribution, but more uh, towards increasing the quality of life in the middle. And I think that having failed to do that, we created a space for for anti-democratic sentiment, anti-democratic speech, and in a way anti-democratic tendencies and rhetoric.
0: What do you think accounts for the fact that, as you say, um, uh, countries in Central and South America have tended toward the left, by and large, including perhaps uh, Brazil, depending on wh- what happens ultimately in their presidential election. Um, and yet uh, in Western uh, Europe and other places around the world we see the electorate tending uh, to the right. So recent elections in Sweden and
2: Italy, for example. What, what, what do you think is going on there? I, I think there's a couple of issues that, that are interesting. Uh, First of all, Latin America is very divided. And it's true that if you see it as a trend, Latin America has moved to the left. But I think that as one looks at Latin America more carefully, what has happened is that Latin America moved away from the center. So extreme right and extreme left are, are, are both doing well. If you look at Brazil as just the last example, just yesterday, and we had an opportunity to talk about it, Lula and Bolsonaro were, were, were pretty close. Neither one of them got to a simple majority. They're both going to go off to, 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 to the second round. But what was interesting, I think, is that Brazil was basically divided between extremes. And that tends to be the case in Latin America in general. So I think that a, a more interesting question is why is it that extremes are doing so well? Uh, and I think that there's, there's an, an answer that has to do with probably many things. I think the founding fathers in the U.S. were onto something that we probably don't talk about as much, but they recognized that campaigns would be divisive. So at the end of the campaign, they had whoever won take an oath where he promised in front of God and the people that he would govern for all. And that oath had sort of like a baptismal element to it because then that would allow the candidate as he transitioned to be the president to distance himself from the rhetoric and from some of his policies that, that were not really geared uh, towards all, but they were geared towards for a more partisan uh, leaning. I, I think that intuition has weakened. And you see now political leaders not, not only governing for, for a, a subset of the population, but actually talking to a subset of the population. And that I think brings in a couple of other trends that, 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 are, that are important. When one looked at the way that we used to talk to citizens from power, we basically, at the beginning, didn't. We just talked amongst ourselves. You, you delivered the State of the Union. You spoke on occasion to the Supreme Court. You were not really speaking to, to, to people directly. Then suddenly things started to shift and, and you would give these big interviews. And, and one can remember these great interviewers from the U.S. and those of you that are not from the U.S. probably have in mind somebody who's great at interviewing people and the interviews were curated and these big interviews sort of became a bridge between people in government and, and people in general. But in the last years, people have been able to bypass the other powers and they have been able to, to bypass these curated dialogue through the media and speak to people directly. And I think that that capacity to speak to people directly, which has undoubtedly you know, many benefits from the perspective of communication, actually has also created this very divisive environment where the, the, the elections t- t- tend to, to move people apart and to separate them towards the extremes rather th- than towards the middle. So I think that is just an arithmetic fact that in some cases those extremes turn out to be right or left. But I think that what's most, most interesting as a trend is that the extremes seem to be thriving in politics and there's a pull away from the center, that, that is something that I think that we should reflect upon. And just rounding up, I think, both comments, there was, there was a statistic that stuck with me after the campaign. In Mexico, if you finish high school, you're going actually to live five more years than if you don't finish high school. The problem with Mexico is that there were 44 million adults that did not finish high school. Their life was going to be so tough, so difficult, that they would actually die younger. And if you look at these same numbers throughout Latin America, and even in the U.S., not high school in the U.S., rather college, that continues to be the case. So so this result that excluded so many people from the benefits that were being generated by our societies, I think weakened the case for liberal democracies and at the same time strengthened the argument for more extreme political alternatives.
0: One of the, if not the major, um, issues in the world today, of course, is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Mexico's position on on, uh, Russia has been somewhat nuanced. Um, uh, What's your take on uh, uh, Russia? What's your take on Ukraine? How's this thing going to end? <laughs>
2: uh, that, that's a complicated question. and, and but, but I think that it provides, I don't, I don't know how it's going to end, but I think it provides an opportunity in terms of how we can analyze both Mexico, the position of Mexico, uh, North America in general vis-a-vis this conflict. First, uh, History is important. History waits, uh, I think, on, 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 it waits on politicians. It, it waits on the community. And if you go back and, and study Mexico, you, you will find a hundred years of rhetoric that sort of says you know, that social rights were included in the constitutions because of Russia and Mexico, and that the current in Mexico came into being, after a social revolution in 1910 all the way up to 1920, and that that revolution resulted in social rights being included at the level of the Constitution. And we sort of thought that we were part of the same process with the Russians, and that the Russians were the only, the, the other social revolution, in, in, again, 1915, 1914, that, that resulted also in social rights being included in, in, the, in, in the Constitution. And that's basically the only thing that ties us today to Russia this perception that we both came out of similar social processes. Because if you look at the economic content of the relationship, that's not there. If you look at linkages between Mexico and Russia, they tend to be very tenuous. If you look at interconnectedness between the two countries, the substance of the relationship is not there. But history tends to wait in terms of the way that we view the world having repeated for so many times that we came out of similar social processes. So I think that that's part of it. One cannot, I think, discount the the relevance of of history and the way that the history fits into our education programs in terms of how we take decisions. Having said all of that, I think that the Russia-Ukraine conflict allows us to put Mexico in perspective. Mexico is very similar in size, from an economic perspective, to Russia, which I always find surprising. Actually, Mexico is the exact average in terms of of the size of its economy, of the combination between Russia and Turkey. Russia is about 25% bigger than we are. We are about 25% bigger than Turkey is. So from from the perspective of their their ambitions, both Turkey and Russia have a relatively small economy from which to propel their ambitions to, to the rest of the world. So a good way to try to think through as to how this might end. There's many elements to the conflict. There's, there's you know, the war and the word that the war has been evolving. And, and in a way, one of the surprises has been that, that the Russian army appears not to be up to the task of actually you know, combating Ukraine. But when one goes back and thinks about the size of the Russian economy, and if one compares that to Mexico, if Mexico suddenly, and Secretary Napolitano said that this would be a very bad idea, decides to invade Guatemala, because our army would probably have difficulties as well. You know, so maintaining an, an army uh, with an economy the size of Mexico and with an economy the size of Russia, discounting you know, the, the, the nuclear capacities and so on and so forth, it's, it's probably complicated, again, in terms of, of their ambition. Secondly, I think, Russia is not very global. Russia is basically only systemic in oil and gas. If you define systemic by explaining more than 5% of exports of a specific good, that basically just results in fertilizers, oil, and gas. Mexico is systemic in about 13 to 15 different products. We're systemic in everything from auto cars to medical equipment. We are smaller than Russia, but we export about 40% more than Russia does. So, so Mexico is much more global. So if, if you go away from the mechanics of the conflict and just look at the economic consequences of the war for an economy that's not very diversified, the, the pain that, that the war and that the sanctions can impose on, on the structure of the Russian economy, I think should not be overstated. Uh, oil and gas are difficult to substitute away. Uh, oil probably a little bit easier than gas. But if, if the West is capable of diversifying away from Russian oil and gas, the, the, both the war and the sanctions can really create havoc in, in, in an economy that is not as global as one would think. So as time goes on, if you is, is able to, to survive the winter without access to Russian gas, I do think the Russian economy is, is going to feel a lot of pain.
0: And how about China? Uh, how do you view China's role in the world today? How is it viewed in Mexico, uh, um, both from a, uh, uh, an economic standpoint and also a geopolitical standpoint?
2: I, as, I think as one goes back and, and looks at Russia and the fact that they're not very systemic in the global economy, that's not the case with China. I mean, China I think is is, very globally systemic. They're ingrained in the North American value chains. China is Mexico's second largest trading partner. But but Mexico is not part of the Belt and Road Initiative. We're not, and two things. Even though they're our second largest trading partner, they're about a tenth of the relationship that we have with the US. So even though they're important, they're not in the same league in terms of being as systemic as North American trade is. In general, the counterpart to a country that has such large trade surplus is that they invest a lot in the world. One of the things that is interesting is China has a big presence in Central and South America. They don't really have a systemic presence in Mexico. So China would typically, as you look at its influence around the world, they would be significant in terms of trade, and it will be significant in terms of infrastructure and investment. That's not the case in Mexico. They're significant in terms of of trade. They're not significant in the case of investment. And I think that just as Russia allows us to put Mexico in perspective in terms of how global we are, I think that these tensions between China actually show a strength that the the North American region has in terms of the resilience of the value chain, and the opportunity to create a regional economy that's quite strong. As one looks around the world, there's a couple of stories that surprise because they're not there. When you talk about uh, uh, supply chains disruption, those disruptions tended to happen outside of North America. The the part of the story that's not being present as, as, as we speak today is people are not talking about disruptions in the North American biochains because there were none. And this was not a foregone conclusion the health cycles with COVID were not well synchronized between Mexico and the US. So the peaks and valleys were different. So there was real concern as to whether we would be able to sync up our value chains in a way that they were not going to be disrupted by COVID and and, and now by war. And by and large, the the North American value chains have been very resilient. And I think that that's a strength of the region. And that's the strength that, vis-a-vis the role that China now plays in the world is a strength that we should not only work in terms of how we can foster it in North America defined as the US, Canada, and Mexico, but actually how we can translate that strength by making more of Central and South America be part of those value chains that would enable us to leverage the fact that geopolitically, the Americas are quite stable as a region. So
0: do you think there are opportunities um, heretofore Unexploited for uh, China, the United States, and Mexico to actually cooperate on any issues?
2: I think there's at least three that, that, that come to mind. Trade continues to be important. I mean, there's, there's a lot of talk about ally shoring and near shoring, but even when that happens, the conversation might be different, but as of today, China continues to be systemic in, in, in value chains and they continue to be systemic also in the North American value chains. So I think that from a global perspective, th- th- there needs to continue to be a, lot, a dialogue where you know, Mexico, the U.S., China are part of the conversation. They are also part of the conversation that has to do with security. Uh, and I think that as the drug trade moves away from marijuana and cocaine into fentanyl, uh, I think that that requires a, a Mexico, China, uh, U.S. conversation. Uh, I think that they're part of many issues that, that have, that get into a drug trade that get into illegal fishing. I mean, just down in the Gulf of California, the Totuabas and the Vaquita uh, Marina would have a lot to do with uh, overexploiting and illegally f- fishing activities in the Gulf of Mexico. So I think there is scope uh, for, for trilateral uh, dialogue. Against the transnational criminal organizations. Yeah. It's, it's going to be hard to find solutions to some of those issues mm-hmm. if, if the three countries are not sitting down at the same table. So for many of those issues, I think that, that China needs to be part of the conversation in, in a way that I, I don't think they have been as of yet, uh, And I think that there's an opportunity there to sort of trilateralize uh, reflections around some of these issues. And there continues to be, I think, an opportunity to trilateralize dialogue around more typical issues, especially as related uh, to, for example, resilience of value chains. But even more ample you new know, global debates, uh, it's very hard to envision a world where you know, combating climate change is, is, is successful unless you know, countries like Mexico, China, and the U.S. are part of the conversation. We're here in
0: um, California, um, and we're having a discussion about Mexico, and we can't really have a discussion about Mexico without talking about the border. Um, and both you and I have worked on border related issues for a number of years. Um, How do you assess the current state of the border? Um, And uh, let's get that answer first and then I'll follow
2: up. I I, I think the the question is really interesting. Uh, And one gets the impression from the rhetoric around US-Mexico relationships that, that we're overdiagnosed. My perception is that we're not. So, so many people don't really know who, who their, their southern neighbor is here in the U.S. And it's sort of indistinguishable, you know, whether Mexico, Honduras, Guatemala, Colombia. You know, when, when I was foreign minister, and, and I said I was from Mexico, people would typically say, well, I've never been to Mexico. I've been to Cancun. Yes. But I've never been to Mexico, no? So, so there, we're not as well-known and as well-understood as we should.
0: No, I'm going to take a pause. How many of you have been to Cancun?
2: Okay. How many of you been to Mexico City? Oh. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Okay. <laughs> that, that shows that you're very cosmopolitan here, here at, at Berkeley. That, that would not be a typical answer. Not a typical answer. Cancun is the most visited airport in all of Latin America. It's, it's easier even than, than the airport in, in, in Mexico City. But I just established that we're roughly the same size as Russia, which much more diversified, with 25% bigger than Turkey, and there's very few issues and conversations that would not benefit from a North American approach. Drugs, migration, security, of course, but climate change, biodiversity, tourism, poverty, wealth creation, border dynamics, Around conversations that, that we should be having, and, and it 's a great opportunity for me to say that we had typically those conversations with Secretary napolitano. she is probably the, the highest ranking u s government official that was most involved in Mexico for the better part of a decade and a half. I mean she has not only been to Mexico City, she has you know, ridden horses in Mexico, she has participated in Camalgatas, so, so she thoroughly knows understands and cares, I think, about Mexico deeply in a way that is not usual. If one looks at a metric, President Clinton's book is is about a thousand pages long. He mentions Mexico eight times. President Obama's book, it's almost twice the size of President Clinton. He mentions Mexico twice. Secretary Kerry, who, who also has a pretty big book, he mentions Mexico once and basically to make reference of the proposal to to Ambassador from Mexico that was actually not approved by Congress, so he he never actually made it to Mexico. We're not part of of everyday conversation. And I think the the, the opportunities for Mexico, for the U.S. to to have a a more structured, systematic dialogue would be to the benefit of, of the region. And I think that what's true about Mexico this to be true about the dialogue between the U.S. in general and Latin America. Because as, as we went through the number of cases that Mexico was mentioned in the reflections about the legacy of, of U.S. presidents and Secretary of states, Latin America do, doesn't appear in that conversation. And Latin America is more or less uh, uh, politically stable. Uh, we have access to natural resources. Mexico explains about half of the trade. But but it's a a region that that I think would benefit for more dialogue. And if you look, for example, at at the diplomacy of vaccines, the bulk of Latin America were vaccinated by the Chinese. The most important trading partner to most Latin American countries other than Mexico are the Chinese. So I think there's there's opportunities that are being foregone because we don't have better engagement between the US and Latin America. And I think that that would do the benefit of both. So, Secretary Napolitano asked, before we got here, if one were to choose one initiative that could make a difference between Mexico and the U.S., the answer might surprise you. But I always thought, when I was Minister of Foreign Affairs, that that single issue should be reversible lanes. We have, every single day, a million people cross legally the U.S.-Mexico border. 300,000 trucks transfer the border every single day. It's one of the busiest borders almost everywhere. And the flows are pretty predictable. People tend to go from south to north in the morning and from north to south in the afternoon. But making the lanes reversible is not just about duplicating the infrastructure with one bureaucratic decision, but it would force us to speak about complicated issues. It would force us to have the same paperwork it will force us to have the same quality of our customs. It will force us to have a different view and a different debate in terms of migration. And by having all of that complicated debate just behind the issues of how to make the lanes reversible, we could carry out the level of comprehension between the two countries at a different level. So reversible lanes. Reversible lanes is the way to go. Uh, vaccine diplomacy. I think the vaccine diplomacy is the best sort of diagnostics as to the presence of the U.S. in Latin America as compared to the presence of China in Latin America. Um, So when you talk about
0: reversible lanes, we're really talking about having a a 21st century border, right? Yes. Um, That really
2: facilitates trade and travel and tourism and so forth. And security. And security. Because again, for the lanes to be reversible, the people would have to have the same training. We would have to put in in them the same level of trust. The fact that we have exactly the same paperwork, the same information flowing both sides of the border, I think would put us on another level. As it is, it's the most transit border in, in, in almost all of the world. Just one of the good things about Brexit is that one can say without a doubt that Mexico trades with the US more than the US trades with Brexit, trades with Europe. Because if the UK was in the equation, the trade with Europe would be marginally larger. But that means that Mexico is our most important trading partner to the US than Germany, Spain, France, Italy put together. The whole of Europe trades less with with the US than than they trade with Mexico. So having your largest trading partner just next door creates a whole host of opportunities that I don't think we're taking advantage of.
0: You know, uh, you've talked about having a... uh a kind of, a, in a way, North American uh, approach to global problems, Canada, U.S., uh, Mexico. Um, but I noticed that uh, President Obador did not attend the um, uh, South American, Latin American summit that was held in Los Angeles recently. Um, was that a mistake?
2: I think it was. But it takes us back to, to the first question that, that you asked. Latin America has changed fundamentally a lot in the last six years. So if you go back to six years, to the summit of the Americas in, in, mm. in Panama, literally everyone was there. And then you had the select meeting in Cuba, to which the U.S. is not a party to, but every president of Latin America and the Caribbean was there. So there was a sense of a unified Latin America that could have a good engagement with the U.S. That has changed a lot, I think, in the last six years. Not just vis-a-vis the U.S., but vis-a-vis the the, the U.S. and Spain. It's very hard to have Ibero-American dialogue because of the way that many Latin American countries define themselves vis-a-vis Spain, and their indigenous community, and their indigenous rights, and what have you. But I think that the Summit of the American shows that there is much more work to be done in terms of Latin American integration, and U.S.-Latin American dialogue. But I do think that not being party to that dialogue means that, that Mexico misses out on the opportunity to make its case that, 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 that we should be present. And I think it's always better to talk with countries than to talk about countries. And I think that even if, if the President thought that the summit should have been more inclusive, it would the, the interest of Latin America in general and Mexico in particular would have been better served had he said that. Este, uh, at the summit. And I do think that the opportunities for regional integration are not being taken advantage of on both sides of the border. And that means that we're not doing enough in energy, in water, in cybersecurity. There's a host of issues that would benefit from having a North American perspective that, that we're not talking about and taking, taking advantage of. And again, part of it has been on, on our own decision. I mean, no, Part of it, I think, is Mexico not choosing to participate in, in, in those levels of dialogue. And foreign policy is not, it's not state policy, it is governmental policy, and one campaigns on that. And President Peña Nieto, for example, believed that Mexico needed to be global. Uh, and we can think about what that means for a country like Mexico. President Observador thinks that the best foreign policy is internal policy. And he's been consistent with that, uh, with that belief. I don't think that we've had a debate in Mexico as to how global we want to be, how domestic we want to be. I do think he ran on that on, on that campaign, you know, on that platform. He won, and, and that means that a different foreign policy perspective, there appears to be an appetite for a less global Mexico than one would have thought.
0: You know, um, uh, during the previous administration, President Trump. Um, uh, he had several policies at the border, the remaining Mexico policy, the so-called uh, Mexican uh, Protection Protocol. Uh, he had the Title 42 public health uh, uh, policy uh, at the border. Uh, how were those perceived in Mexico and and... How were relations between the Trump administration and, and uh, the uh, Ovidor administration?
2: It, it's, I think it's interesting when one tends to, to, to value your know, foreign policy, because it tends to be you know, full of intangibles. So it's hard to say whether you were a good foreign minister or not, or, or what the quality of dialogue between your, your counterparties was. Uh, but what we have not held for a very long time, and I think I still think we haven 't for four or five years we haven 't had a summit of the of of, of you know, the, the three amigos canada mexico, and the u s and, and the breadth of, of the engagement has changed if you look at the, the summit that we had in in do you remember where the last summit was in mexico the summit between it was i think it was harper uh, Obama and, and President Peña Nieto. Do, do you remember who it was? Any of you? It is a fun story. You know, it t- turns out there was there was reports that the U.S. was spying on us. So huge issue, the G20 process, we were in Russia. So, so the U.S. said, well, you know, we really want to send a signal that we're in this together. So why doesn't Mexico think about a very powerful way to send that signal? So we went to President Peña and said, well, you know, The the US is willing to send a powerful signal. So he he says, well, we should have the summit in Toluca. So how many of you have been to Toluca? Mm -hmm. Have they missed much or or not really? really, So we had the summit summit in, in Toluca in order to make amends. But if you look at that communique, everything was there. And we were talking about everything from the Mariposa Monarca to trade, to security, to migration. So it was an agenda that that we tried to expand as a way of of almost having a hedge. Between migration and security are always difficult topics. So we kind of thought if we get the U.S. engaged in education, in climate change, in other things, then wherever somebody said, well, you know, we're having issues with Mexico, with migration, some other cabinet minister would say, well, yeah, but but, we're doing fantastic things in education. All of that was a long-winded answer to the fact that U.S.-Mexico relationship became focused just on migration. And that that is the only thing that we have been talking about for the last four years. And not really even talking about migration qualitatively. We basically just reduce the migration issue to let's not have people come over our border and and Mexico help in putting order in the southern part of the border in whichever way you can. And, And I think that, that sort of misses out in, in the capacity to engage in a much broader agenda because we basically just dealt with, with migration and within migration with a subset of the migration issue that had to do with controlling the flows in the, in the southern part of Mexico.
0: Did, um, uh, did you work, uh, well, let, let me uh, ask it in, in, in this way. We've mentioned uh, transnational criminal organizations um, and in addition to the the border um, in the United States, there's also a big focus on drug cartels and drug-related uh, violence. Um, what is your assessment of how that stands in Mexico now, and what more can be done?
2: I think that Mexico needs to do much more, regardless of, of U.S.-Mexico, regardless of the content around security and drugs, just on our own, just because it's the right thing to do for Mexico. Just as I think it's the right thing to do for Mexico to have orderly flows from a migratory perspective, it's the right thing to do for Mexico to engage in an agenda that results in Mexico being more secure. I think as one looks at security in Mexico, it it tends to be more nuanced than, than, than what we typically believe to be the case security has not been widespread and has not been focused in the same areas if you look at it from a longer perspective. If you go back to the 90s, insecurity in Mexico was basically related to the south, probably linked to the Zapatista uprising. Then it went to the north, probably linked to marijuana and cocaine, and now it's moved to the northwest, probably linked to the ports and the fentanyl trade. But regardless of what's happening with drugs, there, there's a big chunk of, of, of Mexico that lives in, in a security situation that's similar to what we see in Ukraine now. Th- there are places in Mexico that see more, more violence than what we are seeing in, in a country that's at war. Regardless of U.S. Mexico, that, that's unsustainable in Mexico. And I think that Mexico has to embark on an agenda that's going to take us time, that is probably not going to, to, to give a results in the very short run, but but that it's a journey that many other countries in the world have actually gone through successfully. So there's a certain number of police officers per population that we have. We're short that amount. Those police officers should receive a certain level of training, betting, qualification, benefits. We're short that amount as well. In Mexico, law enforcement tends to be defined at the state level. That means we don't even have a a federal uh, identity in terms of what a crime is. So have, have some of you guys gone to Puerto Vallarta? Just one, you should go, it's really beautiful. <laughs> Nuevo Vallarta, you should also go as well because it's very beautiful. Puerto Vallarta is in the state of Jalisco. Nuevo Vallarta is in the state of, of Nayarit, but they're basically the same region. If you go and, and rob a house in Jalisco, the penalty you get is about 10 years of prison. If you do the same in Nayarit, it's 17 years. So not surprisingly, homes are more insecure in Jalisco than they are in Nayarit. But it's exactly the same region. It's separated by by, by a street. So it makes no sense to deal with a regional or, or national phenomenon that has to do with organized crime, with police forces that are segmented at a state level and that define... the the, the criminal processes at a state level as well. Changing all of that will require time. I don't think there's any shortcuts. I do think that Mexico doing better in that arena would be to the benefit of the relationship, but it would mainly be to the benefit of Mexico.
0: You know, you're a former finance minister. Um, uh, Are there things that can be done to, um, attack the financial
2: underpinnings of the cartels? I think they are, and being autocritical, I don't think that we did enough. I think there's a, there's a ton of information that, that, that we have at our disposal. I think to do more in terms of, of attacking the, the financial underpinnings of the cartel. I'll give you a couple of anecdotes. In a raid that was carried out in Mexico in 2011, we found the, the accounting papers of the CETAS, Literally, you know, their, their, their accounting. And it was very well done. And, and, and they actually paid. So who here has, has read Stephen Levitt for economics? That's yeah, pretty really fun. He has a chapter, which is basically called, Why Do Drug Dealers Live With Their Moms? And, and the, the chapter is interesting, because the, the entry level job for, for a drug dealer pays, it doesn't pay very much. So it's like a price economy. You know? The big capos make the big money, and people are willing to participate in that with the hope of eventually becoming a big capo. But the entry-level jobs pay actually quite little. So we actually worked w- with, with the, the accounting of, of, of the CETAS, and we were able to get lots of information. How diversified their income sources was, how much they, they got from the drug trade internationally, how much they got from the drug trade domestically, uh, how much they got from, you know, kidnapping and arsoms and, and, and derecho de piso. Yes. How, how is that translated to? It's like a blackmail, I
1: guess, where yeah. you force the holders of an establishment
2: to pay for the right to Almost like a right of way, you know, right of establishment. So we actually had a very good idea as to how, how, what the sources of income were. On the basis of that, we concluded that the setas which was just one of the cartels in Mexico, were roughly the size of Cinepolis. Some of you, actually probably in the States, because they have happens in the States, have gone to Cinepolis' owned movie theaters. So the Cetas by themselves were worth, in 2011, about, you know, a couple of billion dollars. On the basis of that, we think that the cartels generate revenues to the tune of about 33, 35 billion dollars a year which is a significant amount, but it's not something that we have the right scale at the level of the state, we should be able at least to make sure that that doesn't translate into a national security issue and is reduced to a public security issue. So we think it's about you know, 37, 35 billion dollars. They employ probably around half a million uh, uh, people directly employed, and they have more or less the same arms capacity as the army of Argentina. So they are a force to be reckoned with, and one of the elements has to do with with finance. What information do we have? We actually force the financial system in Mexico to report as the US does any operation that's relevant than was usual or that falls outside of typical patterns. We do the same for the real sector in Mexico. So notaries, real estate agencies, uh, they have to report the same. All of that information is there to be processed. And if you start processing that information, that eventually gets you from from that information to patterns of trade, to patterns of investment that should eventually enable you to weaken the financial support of the cartels. So I do think there's more information than the one we used when I used to be in finance. We tried to do it and we got a couple of good results out of that. But we needed to do it in a more systematic fashion, from a longer period of time, in a way that, that made it clear that, that we had the objective of of reducing the underpinnings of the cartels. So I do think that there's there's an opportunity in all of that. But we need we need the police officers. We need to do the financial work. We need to do the investigating capacity. We need to upgrade the quality of our of our institutions. We need to probably homogenize the way that crimes are defined so that we're able to fight them more successfully. And that's a journey that will probably take the very time of a decade. Unless we do it, we're not gonna get the results that we need.
0: I think you mentioned to me at lunch that um, Mexico needs around 600,000 roughly uh, trained police officers. And then of course you need the whole system. You need the prosecutors and the judges and uh, uh, et cetera to have the rule of law uh, apply. Let's um, uh, move on to an, another area of, well, let's talk about another crime. Uh, let's talk about cybersecurity. Um, an issue in Mexico?
2: Well, it's, it's an issue that's very timely. We just heard, I think last Friday, that the army have actually been hacked and that the hackers ended up in possession of six terabytes of information. So, so it's, 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 it's right in the news It's a huge issue. It was the the Mexican army. And it brings us back to to, to the fact that that's another issue that would benefit for for better U.S.-Mexico dialogue. Because even though this is not something that we think about often, there's lots of linkages between the Mexican economy and the U.S. economy. Our financial systems are linked. Our trade systems are intertwined. Our grid is connected specifically cal- in, in California. So if we have cybersecurity weaknesses in Mexico. That's something that, that is relevant for the U.S. as well. And the fact that our army was hacked shows that, that there's significant scope for, for improvement, uh, to, to, to say the very least. But that is also one of the issues that I think w- would benefit from being looked at from a North American perspective. Not, not just because we can leapfrog from where we are to where you are, but, but also because uh, whatever shortcomings we have could eventually impinge what's happening in, in the U.S. and the other way around.
0: Um, uh, and, and then um, an, another modern phenomenon is the whole issue of information and how information flows on social media uh, the occurrence of disinformation, misinformation, the impact on our democratic institutions. <clears throat> is
2: that a problem in Mexico? I, I think it is, uh, not just in Mexico, but in the region. So it goes back to, to the oath of office, we're governing for all. Suddenly, you know, there's this trend where we can't govern for, uh, for all, and we actually govern just for our base. But what actually makes the trade, I think, systemic from a democratic perspective is that we can actually talk only to our base. So again, with these curated interviews or, or, or with this dialogue between the different powers in government, that was not an issue. But the, the two trends, you no, know, I am now willing to talk only to my base uh, and to govern for them, plus I am able to just talk to them, I think results not only in, in, in extremes carving out the center, but actually the extremes having the, the, their own not just their own, their own realities, almost as if they were in different metaverses. Uh, and that, I think, is, is, is be- very damaging to, to the democratic discourse. And it goes back, I think, as, as foreign minister, these this were trends that you noticed. I think it all goes down to probably to, to President Chavez in, in, in Venezuela. So the the presidente format, which at the time from a communication perspective was, was almost inconceivable. Because you could actually see, and from that perspective it was very transparent, you could actually see government being exercised in real time. So he, he would put this five, six hour show every week, and he did it in different parts of Venezuela, and he would take decisions live and communicate it. To the, no? So who owns this building? This guy, who, and why is he using this building for? No, he's not using it for the public good, so let's expropriate this building, and he would communicate the decision. To, it made for riveting TV, but it also allowed Chavez to, to, to speak to the Chavistas in a way that, that ended up generating almost like, like a cult and a following. Then you went from, from Chavez to, to, to Nicaragua and Ortega, and Ortega, he, he, has, he has cameras in his office. He would receive us there, he received me as foreign minister, and suddenly he, he took the microphone up and that was a signal for the TV stations to interrupt whatever they were doing and transmit what Ortega wanted to tell the population. And that day, he wanted to speak about boxing, and Alexis Arguello and El Gallito. So he ranted about boxing for about 15 minutes and was transmitted to the whole of Nicaragua. And I think that the President Trump's tweets and Andres Manuel Mañanera, are very effective ways of communicating to a base, but not just of communicating with them, but in crafting a, a, a reality. The President uses this phrase, just as President Trump used the fake news idea. President, and matter, I think, has enriched our, our political discourse with the concept of other data. So, so, whatever you say to him, he will say, well, you know, I have another an other data. And this other data debate I think is made possible in a way because it can communicate it directly. So so social media with all of its benefits of granularity also I think have introduced the capacity of making dialogue not only granular but of shaping your, your, your reality and your beliefs in, in terms of, of addressing the concerns of, of, of your base, not just the concerns but the beliefs of your base in a way that I think we should probably take more time to study because of the effects that it has in political discourse, in the effects that it has in polarization, in the effects that it has in carving out space for compromise, and we both served you at a local level, we at a federal level, in divided governments. And that meant that you had to engage in politics and to convince and to reach out. That is being made harder and harder by the fact that now it is as if you did have a right to have your own data.
0: Yeah, other data, otherwise known as alternative facts,
2: otherwise, yeah. 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 Yeah, It works, I mean, I I, I was finance minister and we increased the price of gasoline from 13 pesos to about 15 pesos. Those that are from Mexico will probably remember, it was very tough to the point where I used to go to mass to a relatively middle-sized temple, and I went to a much smaller one because of the social environment. The the price of gasoline has continued to go up in Mexico. So I went out and explained why we did it and what have you, not very successfully. And now people would say, well, it hasn't gone up. But but, but it has. No, 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 really it hasn't. And that's it. That was the end of the debate. Yeah. See, that's very powerful. One learns how to do that. That gets you a long way into, into winning an argument. Uh,
0: very hard to win an argument.
2: Um, how were the events
0: of January the 6th in the United States perceived and received in Mexico?
2: I, I th- the question is very relevant because it has a collateral in Mexico. Mexico had for, for, for the longest of time issues with distrust around the electoral process. Uh, and we 've sort of engineered an electoral process to, to try to deal more and more w- with with the elements uh, that, that allowed people not to trust it. so every six years we would engage in, in an exercise in Mexico, and whoever lost out would say, "Well you know, I lost out because your public sector officials participated so we 're going to change our electoral laws so that no no private of, no public official can state you know, any political beliefs and we will correct propaganda. So, so we created and we regulated you know, more and more our electoral scheme eh, to try to rule out any sources of inequality. And as sometimes happened, the excess of protection was actually results in almost no protection at all because it becomes unenforceable. Uh, but, but in Mexico, there's long been distrust of, of whether election was functioning or not and the beacon of that, the example of that not being the case was the U.S., where you had an electoral scheme that relied on something that's sort of very core and very decent. Whoever lost recognized that they lost. When that doesn't happen, then the whole democratic apparatus, I think, breaks down. And it, 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 so you went from a country that had, I think, extreme belief in these institutions institutions to the point where you actually didn't need almost a judge to call out the result of the election because whoever lost will pick up the phone and, and call whoever won and recognize his triumph and wish him good luck on behalf of the country it, to a country which had a fundamental distrust of, of the electoral system but suddenly saw you know, January 6th happening and that's of the anchors a, a lot of democratic values not, not just I think in Mexico but in Latin America. So I think that that the anchoring of many of these democratic values coming out of the U.S. and feeding into the, the rest of Latin America in a way where de-anchored when something like January 6 happens. Yeah. I think that, that should be a source of concern.
0: For sure, for
2: sure. Before we head to
0: the Q&A part of the program, uh, why don't we uh, conclude um, like, what kind of shape is Mexico in now? Um, how's your economy doing? Are you out of the pandemic?
2: Give us the story. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you the story of how Mexico is. And just a short example as, as to how North America should probably be viewed. We're all going to be watching the, the, the Qatar World Cup. The next World Cup is going to be hosted by the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. You know, and I think that that shows that, that even so can from American, a North American perspective. Right. Mexico, I think, it, it comes out, as, there are some nuances if one were to present a scorecard of Mexico, exports are doing very well. We're actually exporting about 30% more than we were exporting before the pandemic. And I think that shows, you know, again, the value chain story, the resilience, the, the importance of Mexico vis-a-vis the world, how global we are. So export sector in Mexico, which is big, is doing very well, it's growing quite a lot. So, So if you go, to anywhere that's linked to exports, you can actually see physically the, the, the growth in Mexico in that arena. Consumption has held up very well. If you look at consumption in Mexico, that has more or less, it's a little bit bigger than it was before the pandemia. So exports are doing really, really well. Consumption has held up, which is non-trivial given that the pandemia really affected families and their budgets and their endowments. Investment is not doing well. I think that that's a source of concern in terms of future growth. Public finances are very sound. And I think that especially when the U.S. is tightening monetary policies, the fact that our public finances are well anchored is a source of stability. Whenever the U.S. tightens, something somewhere breaks. Mexico did in 82 and 94, the Asian crisis in 97, the dot-com bubble in, in 2000, the financial crisis in 2008. I think Mexico's not going to be an actor uh, this time around because not only are we doing well in terms of growing from consumption and exports, but our public finances, I think, are quite healthy. Uh, and that shows, I think, that together with Brazil, we're probably the, the only two currencies that have not depreciated vis-a-vis the dollar. I think that's anchored with good sound monetary policy, uh, reflective also of, of, of good and sound uh, public finances, so I think that that from that perspective, one can argue that we should be doing better, uh, and that is probably always the case. But by and large, the, the Mexican economy, especially the part of it that has linkages with the rest of the world, is doing quite well. Very good. All right. Well, thank you.
1: of questions and I should say at the beginning that I'm sorry that we're not going to get through all of these. So I will do my best to try to synthesize uh, questions on similar themes into uh, sort of single questions so that as many of you as possible have your questions answered. So I'm going to start out uh, with uh, opportunities for cooperation uh, between the United States and Mexico which is a theme that interests uh, several of you. Uh, One of our questions asks, beyond uh, USMCA, where do you see opportunity to further sort of liberalize and expand a stronger North American ties? But other students ask, sort of, is trade the only way to expand uh, relations between uh, the United States and Mexico? And other students ponder, what are the downsides of expanded trade relations? Does expanding trade mean increasing exploitation and inequality in Mexico in particular?
2: So, so let me start by the end and then work, work my way forward. I think that, in trade is good. I think that trade generates wealth and it generates opportunities. But I don't think that's enough. And I think that if you look at Mexico as case in point, it's very hard to find a trade story that's better than U.S. Mexico. I mean, we went from, from exporting basically oil, almost 80% of our exports to, to the world were oil in the 90s, to less than 10% of our export being oil related. Most, most of what we export are, are manufacturing. In pretty sophisticated goods, I mean on, on a good day, if you go to, to a football match here in Berkeley or, or to, to a baseball match in, in Los Angeles, the pitcher would be Mexican, the, the ball w- will be made by Bimbo, the sausage would be made by, by Alpha, uh, and Julio Urias would be, be winning that match. But your kitchen appliances, the car you drove in, the brakes on, on, on the sports car, o- almost all of it is, is, being, is being produced in Mexico. And yet, having had a very successful trade story, did not translate in Mexico from the benefits of that trade being inclusive. So unless I think we can, we can map out ways in which trade and the benefits of trade actually benefit a broader sector of the population, I think the downsides of trade or the perceived downsides of trade Will actually make th- that developmental model being hard. So, I do think that, that the expanded set of opportunities that trade brings with it are, are true, they're there, but that's a necessary condition, but that's clearly not a sufficient condition. A couple of examples of things that we should be talking about. I think they're very pertinent to California. We should be talking about energy and water. If we want near shoring to be a reality, we want North America to be more resilient. We need higher quality energy, not just in terms of access and price, but also in terms of it being clean. And we need more access to water. And I think that neither one of us in the US or Mexico are paying enough attention to what's happening with water. I think that the fact that for the first time ever, the Imperial Valley that's part of both Mexico and California might not actually get enough water from the Colorado River is an issue, uh, and the fact that we typically have difficulties paying our water debt uh, from, from the Rio Bravo into Texas sh- shows that there are going to be real tensions in the relationship if we don't address the, the, the water issue. But just uh, as you know, infrastructure and reversible lanes, I think the low-hanging fruits are partly energy and especially water, and, and if we don't address it, I, I think that, that we will have difficulties going forward. I don't think I do want to. No, I,
0: uh, uh, I agree, and um, uh, the the uh, condition of the Colorado River, in in particular, I think, should give us all, all cause for concern. And uh, one of one of the issues is is that there's actually an international agreement between the United States and Mexico as to the allotment from the Colorado that Mexico is entitled to. And I don't think the United States has actually been holding up its end of that bargain, nor uh, I think given current conditions,
2: can it? It used to be the case that you had so much water that you had to place it in Lake Mead as we said for future payments. But then our water security a huge issue. So, so I think that there's lots of things that the U.S. and Mexico should be talking about that are not related to trade where, where we would actually make gains in terms of quality of life both sides of the border and actually have an impact in, in global issues and global problems.
1: Since you have uh, mentioned uh, water issues as sort of an arena for cooperation uh, beyond uh, trade, let me feed in uh, an audience question uh, about climate. And specifically, uh, what, what this member of the audience would like to know is how Mexico and the United States might cooperate so as to mitigate uh, the effects of, of climate change that are propelling climate-induced migration from Central America into Mexico and, and from there into the United States.
2: So I think there's three issues in the agenda. One of them has to do with mitigation, which we need to do much more than than we already do. And I think there's opportunities to do that. If one looks at Mexico, we have good sun, we have good wind, we have good geothermal. Almost every source of renewable power out there is something that we have. We are currently in the debate as to who should produce it, whether it should be produced by the private sector or by the public sector. And Mexico has shifted around that question. For a very, very long time, we believe that it should be produced by the public sector on its own. We introduced a reform that allowed that to be jointly produced by the private sector and by the public sector, and now we're sort of retrenching back to, to being produced by the public sector. As long as you're fiscally able to do so, which we haven't been in the past, that should not be an issue. My perception is that once one recognizes that we're fiscally constrained, we should go back to having more private, public participation in that. But at least theoretically, the region is very well endowed. Uh, and and to, to a point that we did not talk a, a lot about that, but as one looks at the root causes of migration from Central America, there's exactly the same number of Central America as there is of Canadians. And it's natural for the Central Americans to want to live as the Canadians do. So unless we can provide the the endowment in terms of infrastructure and energy to Central America so they can have that expectancy, we will continue to see a migratory pull north. And the the, the lowest hanging fruit, I think, is to modernize the energy matrix of Central America to make it more competitive. So I think that beyond climate change, just modernizing the, the, the energy matrix in the U.S., of course, in Mexico and bringing in Central America into that equation actually will lessen, I think, the the incentives to migrate.
0: So are you talking about greater exports of oil and gas from Mexico to Central America?
2: Actually, from the U.S. to to, to Central America. I think there's there's an issue of codependency. Mexico is dependent, sort of like Germany, is dependent on, on Russian gas. Mexico is reliant on Texan oil. But Texas is dependent on Mexico buying it. So the only place today where Texas can send its gas through pipelines is Mexico. Uh, and we basically have, I think, redundancies even in the northern part of Mexico all the way down to central part of Mexico. Gas gets down uh, all the way south to Veracruz and Oaxaca. We're about 500 kilometers away from being able to develop to, to, provide gas to Chiapas and Tapachula and therefore to Central America. So if you if you increase the investment on, on, on the gas the gas lines so that they go further south, from a developmental perspective, you you could really generate lots of competitiveness in southern Mexico and Northern Central America to really change the dynamic of that region. And I think that, that that's to the benefit of Central America, Mexico, and and the U.S., specifically Texas, but it's also to the benefit of climate change because you would be moving towards a a matrix that even though it still relies on fossil fuel, it's much cleaner than the way energy is now being uh, uh, generated by either residual fuel, coal, or diesel in in many parts of Central America.
0: So are you saying that with, say, a $500 million investment in, in constructing a, a southern bound pipeline uh, from Texas through Mexico to uh, Central America, that that in turn will help Central American economies and uh, hopefully at some point decrease the amount of migration.
2: So if I were to ask any one of you what what Mexico is putting into play when Mexico exports, most people would think it's labor. The energy content of Mexican exports is seven times bigger than the labor content of, of Mexican exports. So with 500 million and 500 kilometers, you would basically allow Central America to be part of a manufacturing play that they're not gonna be able to be a part of unless they have better energy. So I think that that would be a game changer and I don't think it's expensive. I think it would be a good developmental investment to to modernize the energy matrix of Central America so as to allow the Central Americans to be integrated, not just to North American value chains, but integrated to the global value chains in in, in, in a world that is really very intensive in energy in terms of, of, of the content of its trade.
0: It's cheaper than building a wall.
2: That's my perception. It occupies less space, and it's much greener.
1: Great. A number of students uh, are interested in sort of the big uh, geopolitical context. Uh, so let me introduce a couple of questions that sort of push you in, in that direction. Uh, one of our um, audience members asks, um, you've so far spoken mainly about uh, geopolitical adversaries of the United States. Russia and China and how sort of their actions uh, affect the US-Mexico relationship. Who are Mexico's biggest geopolitical adversaries? What are the big geopolitical threats that face Mexico?
2: I think so so we're depending on how you define it, Mexico's typically defined as a regional power, creative power, smart powers. I mean we have regional influences. Uh, and we're not in the global arena like you know Russia, China or, or, or the US are. in in terms of being dominant players. So from from a geopolitical perspective, we have competitors. China was a big competitor to Mexico. If you look at 2000, one of the biggest impacts that Mexico has had in its economy in in recent times was when China participated in the World Trade Organization. And China and Mexico basically produce very similar goods. So the, the decision to allow China into WTO actually made Mexico enter into a recession in, in 2000. So we don't have, I think, adversaries from a geopolitical perspective. We have competitors that, that impact the quality of our economy. Having said that, and without thinking that there are adversaries, there are some, some structural elements of insecurity that would, would benefit for, from, from, from a better resolution. Uh, two examples you know, that I talked with Secretary Napolitano before. The only border that Mexico has clearly well defined, fortunately, is the border with the US. Our border with with Guatemala is not well defined. That's a problem for our security. So so Guatemala believes that if if you were to recalculate the border with GPS rather than with the stars as we did in the 1900s, in the 1800s, the, the monuments would be placed differently. The fact that we don't have a well defined border creates all sorts of issues. It makes it difficult to patrol, it makes it difficult to invest, it makes it difficult to develop. We negotiated our borders with Belize with the British. That has not been ratified by by Mexico and Belize. So the quality of the definition of that border is complicated. Guatemala doesn't believe that Belize exists. That creates some complications in the relationship between Guatemala and Belize and therefore between Mexico, Guatemala, and Belize. So again, from a geopolitical perspective, that that doesn't put any of them in in the perspective of being adversaries or threats, but the fact that that's not well defined at a core means that there will be security challenges just because of the weakness of the institutions that that underpin our borders. So there's no Belize? According to, to Guatemala, a third of it is ours and two thirds is them. But that's actually how they would place them on a map. So, so I think that advancing some of those conflicts in, in a way that that they, they have a good resolution from a legal perspective that is accepted by the participants, I think is very positive. I mean, conflicts typically erupt, as we've seen in the case of, of Ukraine-Russia, over borders. The fact that, that, that there's, there's lack of, of definition in many of the borders south of Mexico is an issue, because borders are, are not just relevant in land, they're relevant in land, they're relevant at sea, irrelevant in terms of what you can do at sea, what you can do in fishing, what you can do in mining, those, those rare mineral resources, so I think that the region would benefit in, in an agenda that would define our land, our, our water borders in, in, in a way that would make them more executable. So between Mexico
0: and Guatemala, in, in terms of uh, their different views of the border, how much land is at issue? It, it's it's
2: 55,000 hectares, which is the, the size of a you know, big ranch in Montana. It is not but it introduces huge difficulties. For example, it's likely that the Guatemalans have oil. And the, the, probably the oil reserves are, are right in the border between Mexico and, and, and Guatemala. So for the Guatemalans, it's an issue because every time they want to have somebody come invest in, in developing those fields, Mexico will raise up their hands and say, Shh, no, those fields are, are in conflict. Those fields are likely in Mexico. That precludes them from developing their oil resources. At the same time, it precludes us from investing in border infrastructure. So that, that in definition, even though it's not something that impinges on the good relationship between Mexico and Guatemala, the fact that those issues are not well defined introduces an element that impinges on our security and our capacity to jointly develop the borders.
0: Yeah.
1: Let me introduce another question. Uh, So, Secretary uh, Mead, you've really stressed the importance of the bilateral uh, U.S.-Mexico relationship to Mexico. I wonder if you could uh, reflect, as as one of our audience members has has invited you to do, on what the advantages for Mexico of a different kind of strategy would be, a strategy uh, of aligning Mexico uh, with sort of rising middle powers, for example, uh, with with the BRICS. Um, I think that's,
2: that's a fantastic question. So the G20, which I'm a big fan of. You know, I think that the G20 as, 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 is interesting because 80% of everything is there. 80% of the population of the trade, 80% of the territory, 80% of the problems. So the G20 is a fantastic forum to, to sort of reflect on, on global issues. The G20 is basically integrated with, with three blocks. The G7, so you would go to a, G, a G20 meeting and the G7 would get together in one corner and basically decide how they wanted the world to be run. The BRICS would get together in the other corner and they were basically waiting for the G7 to come out so that they could say exactly the opposite.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: but the group of countries that were left in the middle is a very interesting grouping of countries. So who, who, who's not having meetings? As the G7 are meeting and the BRICS are meeting, Indonesia doesn't have anybody to talk to. Turkey doesn't have anybody to talk to, Korea doesn't have anybody to talk to, Saudi Arabia doesn't have anybody to talk to, Australia doesn't have anybody to talk to, and Mexico doesn't have anybody to talk to. So, when I was Foreign Minister, I tried to get us talking. At the very least, so we had something to do. <laughs> when the G7 were solving the world issues and the Brics were trying to not say no to whatever the other guys were saying. But if you look at the countries that are left over, all of them were interesting. All of them were regional powers. Uh, all of them were creatively engaged within the region. We were roughly the same, the similar size. We were the economies. I think, 13 to 17, almost one after the other. Uh, Indonesia has more Facebook users than the UK has population. Korea, from a research perspective, is always doing fantastic stuff. What killed the... The, the, I mean, the dynamic is still current, and, and, and MICTA meets... Four times a year, they meet at the G20, they meet at the General Assembly, they meet at the Liberal level at the G20. So there is that effort ongoing, but the distance was complicated. So, so as a foreign minister, every time I said, well, I'm gonna go to Turkey, you know, people would say, well, why is Secretary secretary going to Turkey? He should be going to Presidio, Texas, because that's... So even though I, I would explain to them you know, the geopolitical value of me going to Australia, that was a hard sell and for Julie Bishop in Australia say well you know I'm gonna go to Mexico people would say well why we have fantastic beaches here in Australia why do you go to no so so reaching out for for regional powers reaching out beyond the region is a complicated political sale I think it makes a lot of sense I think that for Mexico being part of an international grouping the the MICTA space I think makes a lot of sense from a geopolitical perspective it makes a lot of sense in terms of finding partners that have similar issues as you do, that have similar impacts and experiences as you do, is clearly worthwhile. But the challenge with, with being regional is every time you try to do that, there is political backlash because nobody understands what it is that you're trying to do outside your specific region.
1: Great, thank you. Uh, we have a lot of questions about politics. Uh, and I know you're both politicians, so I hope you aren't mind my, my, my asking some of those questions.
2: Secretary Napolitano clearly is a very successful one. Me, I, I'm not so much, <laughs> no. so, but happy to attempt to answer. So
1: um, several, several of our uh, questions uh, sort of you know, want to push you to talk about the relationship between domestic politics and, and foreign policy. You know, one of our questions remarks, uh, for example, that volatile domestic politics in the United States have been destabilizing uh, for, for US foreign policy. And the questioner is interested in whether Mexico is likely to experience similar kind of uh, volatility uh, in, in terms of the relationship between domestic and, and foreign policy. Another student is curious uh, about whether volatile domestic politics in the United States will prevent Congress from ever enacting comprehensive immigration reform. So I thought we might pair those questions and reflect upon the relationship between domestic political volatility and the capacity of the United States and Mexico to maintain a stable bilateral relationship.
0: So I'll take the comprehensive immigration reform question in the United States and um, uh, never say never, but it's going to be a while because it it will require the leadership of both parties uh, to um, be willing to recognize that um, we just can't keep going on the way we're going on. Uh, And um, I think the elements of what would go into a comprehensive reform package are pretty well established. Uh, we need to increase legal migration and reform the visa process. Uh, uh, we we need uh, an effective border that is really a 21st century border, as I mentioned um, with Secretary Mead, um, and properly resourced and 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 staffed. Uh, and we need to. Uh, Uh, create a pathway of citizenship for those who are in the country now. Um, Each of those has subsets to it. Each of those has complications to it. But right now, in a way, both parties um, are applying to a base that uh, doesn't encourage meeting and working through some of these really tough issues and uh, affecting compromise. At some point, uh, the system is going to either collapse in its own weight or um, our political leadership will realize that, no, we we do need reform. And voters should have a big say in that. I mean, ultimately, voters matter here.
2: So I I think the question allows me to talk about... uh, another part of diplomacy that's not what's typically associated with it. So people think about you know, foreign policy and they think about bilateral, right? US-Mexico. But, but there's, there's two elements of, of, of foreign policy that we don't typically discuss or associate with Mexico but that are crucially important. One of them is multilateral. You know? So what multilateral elements do we engage with? And that multilateral engagement has a lot to do with who you are domestically. No, it's, it's very hard to disentangle what multilateral issues matter to you to, to domestically what, what the issues in your country are. So in that sense, I think, especially from a multilateral engagement, there's, there's a very clear bridge between your conditions domestically and, and, and the multilateral elements that you wish to pursue. But the other part of diplomacy is consular diplomacy. And what doesn't really talk about consular diplomacy a lot, but that's really the most important part of diplomacy for, for day-to-day life uh, and the impact in, in people. So there were two schools in Mexico in terms of, of foreign policy vis-a-vis migration. So there, there was the, the, the whole enchilada people. No? We, we basically wanted the whole enchilada. We wanted migrants to be fully legalized uh, and we wanted them to acquire full citizenship. No? And we wanted them to vote and basically become citizens. Uh, and that was sort of what colored the President Fox relationship with with President Bush and that was sort of the aspiration that, that Castaneda in these very colorful terms explained I was of a different school so theoretically what, what is it that we want for our migrants we, we want in general to close the gaps between the, the migrants rights and the citizens rights taken to the extreme the best way to close those gaps is for the migrants to become citizens and that I believe with with Secretary Napolitano, was very complicated. But Secretary Napolitano showed us when she was governor and beyond, that there is another way. So what is it that a migrant wants in terms of his rights? He wants to be able to identify himself. That's not as contentious as becoming a citizen. So we worked out arrangements so that you can identify yourself with the consular matricula. So the migrant can now come to US authorities locally at a state level and say, this is me and have an identity document to provide it. So he's not a citizen, but he has the right to his own identity, and that's important. What else does a migrant want? He wants to drive, and he wants not to commit a felony for driving. So he won't be a citizen, but if we can get the local authorities to provide him with a driver's license, that means that his, his, his legal sort of environment has, has been improved, in in a step in the right direction. So there's a whole host of states that through consular diplomacy now allow, regardless of your migratory status, to have a license. What else do you want? You want access to health without accessing health, meaning that you increase your chances of being deported. So through consular diplomacy, you work with local authorities. And again, Secretary Napolitano, not only from homeland, but as a governor, she expanded the possibility of, of immigrants to have access to health, to have access to education. In the case of California, you, you can actually practice your, 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 your without a legal status, you can be a lawyer in the state of California and, and take the bar. So I think you can decompose the rights associated to being a citizen with a whole host of issues where through consular diplomacy at a local level, you can sort of narrow the distance between the migrant and the citizen in a way that's very meaningful to to, to the migrant abroad. So he may not go all the way to being a citizen and vote, but if you can get him to be able to go to school and pay in-state tuition, so you live in California, you're, you're, you're an immigrant, but you can still have access to state tuition. So you have access to education, to health, to driving, to an identity, to practice. So closing that gap, I think, is an important way to deploy your diplomatic resources at a level that's not the whole enchilada, but that still transforms the everyday experience of a migrant in a very significant way. And I think that that's feasible. That's doable, and I think that every single day, in every single county, in many states, you, you actually are able to move the the gap in a way that that is slowly starting to close in in elements that are significant to to a migrant being Mexican or not.
1: Great, I think we probably have time for one last question. So let me ask you to reflect upon uh, Mexican domestic politics and we'll try to open this up uh, to engage uh, the the U.S. perspective too. A number of students are interested in the future of the PRI the party which has dominated uh, Mexican politics really you know, through much of the 20th century. What do you see as the future of the PRI in, in the 21st century? And somewhat relatedly, what might we learn uh, from the um, you know, recent difficulties that the PRI has experienced for the future of US politics, uh, right? Because in the United States too, we see uh, increasing uh, sort of volatility, feasibility within uh, the two political parties which have dominated the system for for a long, long time. So do we see in Mexico's experience, uh, do you think a a future for the PRI? Uh, And what might be the implications of the PRI's uh, sort of recent difficulties for the Republican and Democratic parties in the United States?
2: So let me take, take a step back and again go into this, this issue that, that Secretary Napolitano talked about in terms of the vibrancy of our democracies, the, the quality of our discourse, and the type of things that you would engage. So go, going back again to, to, to Venezuela, not because I think that there's, any, there's anything meaningful in comparing Mexico to Venezuela, but just in terms of the political environment. People would say of, of the establishment they should all go away. No? Que se vayan todos, people would say in Venezuela. And that was echoed throughout. So there was really a movement within the Latin American context that, that was against the established elites. And there was a sense that, that you needed in, in, in U.S. discourse to drain the swamp and that we should basically get rid of everyone that had ever been part of the establishment. And then that gave rise to an anti-establishment movement that for the past 20 years also have been significant in Latin America. There was another thing that was said, starting in Venezuela, and that then caught on. And it was, no podemos estar peor. Nope. There's no way we can be worse off than, than where we are today with these guys. One can qualify whether or not that, that ended up being true. But uh, as many of these groups actually came into power, those type of discourses become, I think, less relevant because those that were not systemic have actually now governed. And they governed in Venezuela, and they governed in Peru, and now they're going to govern in Chile, and they're now going to govern for the first time in, in, in Colombia, and they have governed for the first time in Mexico. So, so you lose that part of the discourse. B- between El que se vayan todos no longer applies because at this stage everybody has had a chance to run, to run the asylum, no? Uh, and we can be worse off. You know, is also being qualified by the fact that now almost everyone within the Latin American context has a record in terms of what they did well and what they didn't do well. So I think that that sort of, in terms of the pre, going forward, I think that the power of that discourse is probably no longer going to be as attractive as it was in 2018. Or, or, or as it was you know, when, when Evo Morales came into power or when Chavez came into power. So, so my, my impression is that as this pendular shift goes on, it, there might be some reevaluation of, of some of the, the establishment figures and some of the establishment parties going forward. And I think that that might introduce in, in the longer run but the capacity of some of them to reinvent themselves. But I think that they will have to reinvent themselves having learned some lessons and going through an autocritical process, which is not easy. And it goes back to a trade question. You know, if we want support around trade, then we need for trade to do better. If we want support for the traditional parties, then the traditional parties need to do better.
0: I think um, I can improve on that answer.
2: That, that made my treat, <laughs>
1: No, The necessity of reinvention of learning from experience seem like fitting notes on which to conclude.
0: Indeed. And I think um, uh, um, it, it, it does behoove um, members of both the Democratic and Republican parties in the United States to pay attention to what has gone on in countries uh, around the world uh, with respect to their continued viability and vitality within their
1: systems. So I think that all that remains is is to thank our participants in today's most enlightening conversation
2: and then to proceed to refreshments. So thank you.